0: my goodness. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 557. Welcome in. We are doing predictions today. I'm a little bit nervous for today's episode. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I think emotionally I'm already preparing for the feedback and I would imagine the anger, the surprise, the whole spectrum of emotions that is going to come with sharing my predictions for the season. Um, Today we're doing the AFC and NFC North. That means Cleveland, Cincinnati, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Detroit, Green Bay, and the Minnesota Vikings. And uh, I started there because I think the AFC North is probably the very best conference or division, I guess is the right word, division in the entire NFL. It's just loaded with Frankly, four teams that are all playoff contenders. I think the Steelers are the weakest of the four. But I wanted to start in the North because I really like them. Uh, tomorrow we're doing the West. Then we are going to do, I'm waiting until Wednesday to do the East because I want to be able to talk about Hard Knocks at the same time I talk about the Jets. Uh, Thursday will be the South. And then on Friday, we're doing five episodes this week. It's going to be a really massive, really big week. On Friday, we're doing an episode about the Johnny Menzel documentary that came out. Uh, I guess it'll come out tomorrow, August 8th. I'll get to it probably Thursday night, but I hope we are doing really, really well. I am, I'm excited, man. I, I want to start by just introducing the way I do predictions. Here is how I do predictions. Uh, I research each team. This is a culmination of hours and hours and hours of work. I mean, do the math. If you research, I mean, look, one NFL team for an hour Then multiply that by 32 teams. That's already 32 hours of work, and I do more than an hour worth worth of research for every every NFL team. So this project takes a lot and a lot of research. I get to know every team really, really well. Then I dive into the schedule. Once I know everything really well, I feel comfortable. i got a good understanding of each roster. I go through all 272 games during the NFL regular season. I pick the winner in every single game. And at the end... I count up the record I come up and I go, oh my gosh. And it's kind of weird. It's a it's a process of discovery, kind of sobering sometimes. You're going through and when you count up at the end of the year, you're like, oh my gosh, the Browns had a way better year than I thought. Or the Lions look like third division winners. Or, oh my gosh, are the Bears that bad? I mean, it really, there are lots of emotions even for me because I know it's weird, but I, I try to just trust my process. And then at the end, I count it up and I, I'm sometimes even surprised by like, wow, I didn't expect this to go that way. Um, and I want to be very clear. If you do not agree with I ha- what, I, what I have to say, if you do not like what I have to say, you don't agree with me. I encourage you to send feedback. Tell me why I'm wrong. Teach me about your favorite football team, or teach me something I don't know. I really, really like doing it this way. I try to. This year we're doing predictions round one, so these next four days will be we're going to cover all 32 NFL teams, 32 predictions. Then. I'm going to wait a couple weeks. I'm going to listen to feedback. I'm going to do, you know, hear what people have to say. Listen to the anger. Listen to this positive feedback, the negative feedback. I want people to tell me why I'm wrong. I try to listen. I try to acknowledge. I'm, I'm one man covering 32 football teams. That's a lot of work. And so if I get something wrong, have an open mind. And we'll do round two of predictions before the season starts. First week of September. I'm excited for that. I think this process is important because we do round one. I listen, I hear, we have a fun conversation about every NFL team. Then for round two, I think we'll be even more accurate. And I've never done it this way, but I'm really excited to do it this way in particular. Um, I already have an idea. Like, I am, I got one NFL team that I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to get a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, and I am nervous that that one, it's out west, we'll cover it tomorrow. I'm worried my prediction for that NFL team is going to make people very upset. And I might be wrong. And I'm like, ah! What do I do here? So when we reconsider and, and do stuff in, in the round two, we'll, we'll try to, you know, double check everything. I guess it, I double checked everything already. It'll be like a triple, quadruple check. But, you know, I made my predictions. I'm going to tell you what they are now. And then I'm going to ruminate on them for a couple of weeks and start to feel like, am I really comfortable saying that about the San Francisco 49ers? Am I really comfortable saying that about the Steelers, about the Dallas Cowboys? So again, if you don't agree with what I have to say, I invite you to write into the show. Tell me why you don't agree. Teach me something. I have an open mind. I try to be very, very, uh, very—I try to have humility to know that I don't get everything right, but it's a really fun process for me. Uh, It helps me get to know every NFL team way, way better and cover the storylines better throughout the year. So this process is very important, and I hope you write in and give me feedback. Um, I want to start, though, today—I know I've I've hyped up predictions now for, like, the entire first, you know, five minutes of the show— I want to talk about two things real quick that are not predictions related. Then we will get into predictions. First of all, I've got a correction. This will be very short. Last episode, I said that Michael Vick won the NFL MVP when he got out of prison. And that was wrong. It was the wrong award I was thinking of. Michael Vick won the comeback player of the year. I was talking about how Deshaun Watson might have a really, really incredible year this year, and it'd be kind of interesting. Does the NFL, would they feel comfortable giving him the NFL MVP, given all his stuff off the field? Well, Michael Vick got out of prison and won the NFL Comeback Player of the Year award. Maybe Deshaun Watson will get that. I'm not sure. I have no idea. I don't even know if he's eligible because he did play six games last year. But if Deshaun Watson has, like, statistically the best year of any quarterback in the NFL this year, it's going to be a really interesting conversation because, you know, do you hate the artist? Can you hate the artist and like the art? Can you, you know, hate a player for what they've done off the field, but then also respect what they do on the field? That's a very. Interesting ethical question we're going to have to, I think, run into this fall. But let's correct the record. Michael Vick did not ever win an NFL MVP. He won the Comeback Player of the Year, I believe, in 2010 with Philly right after getting out of prison. Remember that Philly, the Eagles team? It was Kevin Cobb. I believe Kevin Cobb lost his job to Michael Vick. Michael Vick playing for Andy Reid. It was incredible. It was so much fun. I, I really, my memory, it must be wrong. I mean, maybe he was in the MVP running at some point. Maybe that's what I'm remembering, but I, I thought he won MVP at some point in that stretch. Those, those Eagles teams were so much fun to watch. And, uh, oh, man, like, uh, I don't know. I, I think Andy Reid's so underrated. He deserves more credit. Now, one more topic, one more thing we have to talk about before we get into predictions today. Um, so right after recording the show on Friday, more breaking news happened in a story that's going to be ongoing and something we will probably be covering Uh, For the next couple weeks and months and maybe even through the end of the year, the Pac-12 is now actually the Pac-4. The the Pac-12, the conference formerly known as the Pac-12, now they're the Pac-4. After recording Friday, we got more news. Uh, So not only is USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington going to the Big Ten, we knew Colorado said, I'm out, sayonara, I'm going to the Big 12. But now three more teams are joining Colorado going to the Big 12. Utah. Arizona, and Arizona State. So that leaves, you know, four going to the Big 12, four going to the Big 10. The teams left behind are Cal, Stanford, Washington State, where I went to college, and Oregon State. So the, the Pac-4, the great four teams in the, the Pacific Four, <laughs> it's so sad. It's in, I don't know if sad, sad is the right word, it is definitely awkward and uncomfortable, and um, I, I guess, you know, for like Washington state or Oregon state, their only options are going to be join the mountain West or I, I, I just can't imagine that you can recover from losing, you know, two thirds of your conference. And then next year you're going to bring in what enough teams to get back to 12 or even close to that. Basically the pack four would have to steal all of the pack 12 and then give them a better name for some reason. You know what I mean? Like There's nothing left of the Pac-12. There's four teams left, and I I think they're going to scramble to find a new destination for them to play in. Maybe uh, that's—I think the Mountain West is probably the only answer for, like, Washington State and Oregon State. Uh, We'll see. I think Stanford could go independent. I don't know what Cal's going to do yet. They're screwed, though. I'm not sure how you recruit if you're at Oregon State or Washington State because you have no idea— where you're going to be playing after this year? So what do you tell a kid you're recruiting? Hey, come, come play for us! I swear we're going to be good. It's like you don't even know where you're playing next fall. Why would I go play for you? It's a really tough situation for Oregon State and Washington State, and it's going to very, very badly hurt recruiting. If not, screw them financially entirely because their TV deal money they were hoping to get eventually, ain't coming, and it's going to really impact Oregon State and Washington and State in particular. Are going to really take a hit and. Uh, man i was there for when when Gardner Minshew and Mike Leach were at Washington State i was there i remember probably like that era and like the Ryan Leaf era when they went to the Rose Bowl like those are probably the best eras in Washington State football history i was there on the sidelines when Washington State beat Justin Herbert in Oregon and the same day college game day came to Pullman that's probably never going to happen again like it's really interesting that it it's we have seen Uh, The Pac-12 took a nosedive, and the real big losers here are are, are who's left behind, Oregon State, Washington State. Um, I don't feel very bad for Cal or Stanford. Um, They never invested in football. And, you know, Cal and Stanford, Stanford especially, talks about how they're so proud of their Olympic sports up there in the Bay Area. And the Olympic sports, swimming, all the other stuff, they don't make any money, really. And I think they should have invested in football because football makes a lot of money built a winning program, and then use the money from football if you want to pay for your Olympic sports and finance them. But the reality is if you want to make money in college in general, you have to have a college football program that brings in revenue and is winning and competitive. And uh, I don't know, man. You know, the Pac-12 dying is something that I think it's totally done. There's four teams left. It's not going to – I don't know what's being said out there. Who knows what breaking news happened while well, I've even been talking. But um, – you know, it's, it's emotional for Pac-12 fans. I understand being sad, especially, again, Washington State and Oregon State. I really feel for those fan bases because I think it's tough to learn that nationally your team has no relevance. And that's painful. No one wants them. No one is really interested in their brand. No one is really interested in having them join their conference. They are the bottom of the totem pole. And, uh, you know, what? it's... I, I went to Washington State. I was there when they were chanting, We want Alabama. And I was like, You guys are insane. Like, you, anyone who thinks that a Pac 12 school is any prayer of competing with Alabama, uh, especially not Washington State back then, they were in the air read with Mike Leach. I was like, You guys are delusional. Um, so I, I don't want to call Pac 12 fans delusional and, and hate on them because it's sad. I realize they're losing something that means so much and has so much tradition. Um, and, and you could argue, you know, uh, Larry Scott, George Klavkoff, the, the former commissioners of the Pac-12, um, you could say, hey, two bad leaders in a row, the conference has dissolved. This may be a lesson how quickly um, something financial can really fall apart with bad decisions made. Although here's a counterpoint I would I would really want to make. I, I encourage everyone, first of all, if you're a Pac-12 fan, enjoy the last year of the Pac-12. This might be the best year in Pac-12 history, actually. There's like eight really good quarterbacks. It's really interesting. It's going to be very competitive. Um The Pac-12 is going to go out like a firework. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be really loud and fun and dramatic and interesting and then never exist ever again. And that'll be very – it's a single-use Pac-12, right? You use it one time, it's amazing, and it's over. Um, And uh, there are endless analogies I could make for things we use one time. They make a fun bang, and then they're done. But I'm not going to say any more. You can use your imagination. Um, And and so, again, I was talking about firework. What are you thinking of, guys? Uh, The audience – so here's the problem with the Pac-12 really to me. You can blame Larry Scott. You can blame George Klaivkov. They didn't get a big enough deal for TV money, whatever. I understand that Larry Scott gets blamed because he signed a deal with ESPN to have later night games that um, was harder for people on the East Coast to watch. George Klaivkov, uh wasn't able to make any kind of TV deal, so he gets a lot of the brunt of the, um, the blame here. But here's what I would argue, and I don't want to blame the fans, but that's probably how this is going to come across. But we have to be honest about this. Um, The audience for the Pac-12 was really small. And, you know, the top 25 rated college football games last year in 2022. Only two of the top 25 games even had a Pac-12 school in them. It's the Rose Bowl, Penn State against Utah, ranked number 11 of the top 25 games, you know, for most viewership, with 10.19 million viewers. And then Notre Dame, USC, week 13, ranked 22nd and got 6.68 million viewers. That's, that's it. Uh, Oregon-Georgia week one, that got was the number 26th ranked game in the, you know, viewership-wise. That got 6.2 million viewers. That's the only other game. There's two and then like a half because Oregon-Georgia is number 26. But in the top 25 of most viewed college football games last year, the Pac-12 is barely on the list. No one's paying attention to the Pac-12. And, you know, not even the Pac-12 title game. Didn't even end up in the top 25. I was shocked. I thought that in my head, it's always been the SEC and the Big Ten, then the Pac-12 and Big 12 neck and neck. But the reality is the Big 12 had way more TV viewership than the Pac-12. Like almost double uh, in the amount of millions of people that watched the Pac-12 or the Big 12 title game compared to the Pac-12 title game. And again, maybe it goes back to Larry Scott. The Pac-12 title game was on a Friday night. I don't know if that's a problem or not. But man, um, there just weren't a lot of people watching the Pac-12. The support wasn't very strong. And, you know, I, I, I don't, it just shouldn't be some overwhelming, amazing shock they couldn't get a TV deal. The viewership was horrible. There weren't enough eyeballs to get a really big TV deal. You saw other college football programs getting more money from their TV deals, but other college football programs and other conferences had more eyeballs watching, had more people paying attention. I'm from the West Coast. I grew up there. I love football. But I have to acknowledge, guys, out West, people have other priorities that mean more to them than college football. I've been to the South. I've been to the Midwest. Guys, a Saturday in the Midwest, a Saturday in the South, almost everything stops. It's all about college football. Like, the the passion. It's not just something. The SEC always says it means more down here in the South. That's not just a saying they use for marketing. The Pac-12 doesn't care about football. Their fan base doesn't care about football the way the South does. It's just a different level of passion and joy and enjoyment. And it doesn't take away from the people that love the Pac-12. I'm sure they had a great time. I'm sure they liked it. But man, the, the support for the conference, the viewership levels wasn't there to justify the money they were asking for. And so it's, it's always going to be weird to me. There's going to be revisionist history. Remember the good old days of the Pac-12? Oh, it's so sad what they did. No, no, no. Uh, people didn't watch it. Not enough people were watching Pac-12 games for them to go, keep going financially. And that's the reality. That's, that's uncomfortable. People don't like that. It sounds like I'm blaming the fan base. What, what I'm saying is, hey, the South cares more. The Midwest cares more. I'm from the West Coast. There's a lot of other stuff happening. It doesn't get cold as quickly. It's it's warm until like December, relatively warm. Hey, I I I, grew, I lived for a brief period in Minnesota. Now as a kid, it's cold in like October. <laughs> like there, I remember people saying we're putting away our summer clothes and bringing out the the winter clothes in like September. It's a different culture. Culturally, things shift to college football, and the West Coast doesn't do that. I want to say one more thing that really sticks in my craw. It really bothers me about the Pac 12. I hated, I hated, I hated hate the way the Pac 12 was run. People don't know, I used to work for the Pac 12. Briefly, I did a lot of contract work, camera work, stuff like that. And I've been to the Pac 12 networks, I've been to the Pac 12 headquarters in San Francisco. The Pac 12 have this bloated, ridiculous, pompous building in San Francisco that was like, why are you spending millions and millions of dollars for this weird headquarters and TV studio in the most expensive city in America? It made no sense to me. I'm like, why are, why are you guys here? Why are we here? It makes no sense. I always thought the minute the PAC 12 got Utah, they should move their headquarters to Salt Lake city. Way cheaper out there. There's incredible internet. Like hey, if I ever need a place to live with fast internet, I'm moving straight to Salt Lake city. Their internet is incredible. There's, um, I believe the NSA is there, which is part of why the network is so strong there. So you, you could have a headquarters. There's a lot of HQs of companies in Salt Lake City. They should have moved to Salt Lake City. They should have moved to a place where it was cheaper to operate everything. You can give employees less, you know, smaller salaries because it's a different market. You can have pay way less for your rent on your building. It's, it's ridiculous. The way the Pac-12 was run was so... Arrogant and pompous, and money was wasted left and right, and it bothered me to no end. I was there in the building. I shook hands. I was nice, but I was also honest, and I was critical. I'm like, why this makes no sense to me? This is insane, and it doesn't. It doesn't matter long term. But I, I'm not shocked that, given the way money was being spent to the Pac-12, and the way viewership was waning and going down and down, especially compared to other conferences, it's not a surprise at all. The Pac-12 didn't last. Uh, that's the end of my rant. I don't have any more to say, but um, it's it is sad. I went to Washington State. I saw some really great. The the first game I ever went to as a as a human alive, I went to watch Oregon State beat USC. Pete Carroll's USC football team lost to Oregon State like on a two point conversion. End of the game. I was there as a child. I watched the Pac-12 my whole life growing up, and uh, it's sad to see it go. But as I've grown up and matured as a football fan and looked around the national audience and looked around at the world, I've gone, you know what is really fun? The SEC. I love SEC football. I'm a huge SEC football fan. It's competitive. It's interesting. It's, gosh, there's so much passion. And I watch way more, I grew up on the Pac-12, but I watch way more Big Ten and SEC football than the Pac-12, partially because it's not as good. It's not as entertaining. The players aren't there. The recruiting isn't as good. Everything about it. And, um, I don't know. It's sad to see the Pac-12 go. I can't imagine they're going to—the Pac-4 isn't going to become anything. Um, And it's really, I think, going to be a lot of people scrambling. uh, Like, I think—I was talking to my dad about this. Cal and Stanford, I think, are going to try to position themselves to be in a position where the next time TV contracts are up, they can join a different conference. Because Stanford is still a world-renowned university when it comes to academics. That might help them get somewhere— uh, maybe they can pair with Notre Dame is a t- thought I've had thrown around, but—or a, a conversation I've seen thrown around, which is maybe the Notre Dame can join with Stanford in some, some way for a while uh, and become a package deal that goes to, like, the Big Ten eventually or the SEC or something like that. But um, I'm sad to see the Pac-12 go, but I, I I don't like the the delusion or the, oh, remember the good old days when it's like, no, <laughs> I, I, I was there. I remember all of it. And there was a lot of bad decisions made and a lot of lack of support from the fan base. And uh, that's that's true. I mean, look at viewership of the SEC compared to the Pac-12. Of course, they weren't ever going to get the money of the SEC or the Big Ten. It just it never financially made sense to me. And, um, you know, long live the Pac-12. May they rest in peace. Long live. I guess they're dying. So rest in peace, Pac-12. All right. All um, right. Are you ready for predictions? I am. I'm really ready to do predictions. I have been working on this for days and days. I took a Thursday and a Friday off. I missed Wednesday's episode or Thursday's episode last week working on this. I have, I I I really worked really hard on this. I'm very proud of this. Um, I got to know every NFL team really really well. I I did so much research, and um, I I hope you like what I've come up with. And uh, if you don't, let me know why. Let's start with this: the Cleveland Browns, in my opinion. Uh, are a team that is is really exciting, really going to be fun to watch. But all the pressure is on their quarterback, Deshaun Watson. He got a $230 million contract, and he's got to play at a high level. The big question hanging in the air is, what's Deshaun Watson going to look like? Because if he plays at a high level, and the Browns are really good, it's going to completely shake up the entire AFC. It's going to look like a totally different landscape. If the Browns are really good, and a dominant force like I think they can be, it changes everything. Now, I got to say this. I'm not a fan of Deshaun Watson. The legal battles, uh, being accused of a ton of sexual misconduct, and y- you got to separate the artist from the art, I guess. I'm not really sure what to do with this, but you, I, I-, I acknowledge it. We'll talk about it. But the reality is, um, you know, he didn't play at all in 2021, was dealing with the off-the-field stuff. He was suspended for most of last year. Deshaun Watson only played in six games last year, was not able to be part of the team for the first 11 games of the year, so he was way behind when he got there and was kind of playing catch-up. But the reality we have to acknowledge is this. Last time we saw Deshaun Watson play a full football season, he was incredible. He was amazing. Deshaun Watson, at his best, is an incredible all-pro-level quarterback. And the Browns are absolutely loaded with a ton of talent. They made a lot of moves this offseason. They added uh, defensive tackle Dalvin Tomlinson. They added safety Juan Thornhill. They added two pass rushers, including trading for Zadarius Smith, a guy who had a good year last year. They are incredibly deep at defensive end. You pair the new guys they got with a terrifying force of nature, defensive end Miles Garrett. I mean, it's maybe the best pass rush in the NFL. I would argue it's probably more likely to be San Francisco or Dallas, but hey, Cleveland belongs in that conversation when it comes to who's got the best pass rush in the NFL. Uh, They brought in a receiver, Elijah Mitchell from the Jets, who didn't get along well with the coaches there, probably wasn't a good cultural fit. Now he's in Cleveland, probably much happier. And the Browns got a new defensive coordinator. coordinator. They brought in Jim Swartz, who was uh, with Philly when they won a Super Bowl in 2017. To me, this is a team with a lot of reasons to win in Cleveland. Now, the head coach, Kevin Stefanski, has a lot to prove. He won a playoff game in his first year in Cleveland. That was amazing. I was there for the ride. I had so much fun. However, since the playoff victory, Kevin Stefanski had two losing years in a row. And, I, and now I, I, I'm tired of the excuses. You've had, you got a new quarterback. You've got a good running back, Nick Chubb. You've got a great offensive line, probably the best offensive line in football. That's what's crazy about this Browns team, by the way. On both sides of the football, offense and defense, they are dominant on the line. They're dominant up front. You've got Amari Cooper at receiver, uh, also Elijah Mitchell, Donovan Peoples Jones, David Njoku at tight end. Got a great defense with great players at every level secondary, linebacker, and pass rush. And similar to Denver, you know, for years I've been saying about the Denver Broncos that. They are loaded with talent, and I think if they can turn the talent into something good, they can win a lot of games. I'm getting kind of burned out on that. I've been saying this for years about Cleveland and about uh, Denver, and I'm, I'm ready for—time like time to put up or shut up. The pressure's on Kevin Stefanski. They have to win. Um, an- another player they got back—it's not an addition, but they got Anthony Walker, their linebacker, back from injury. Uh, he played only three games last year, got hurt. and Cleveland's got a really good secondary— Again, the pass rush is incredible. Across the board, the Browns are an amazing football team. It's up to their coaching staff to put them in a position to succeed. I like Jim Schwartz. Pressure's on Kevin Stefanski. But it might be uncomfortable to say this. People may not like to hear this. I think it's something that the Browns have not been a team, when I look around the world, are not getting a lot of praise as maybe one of the better teams in football. And I think because of Deshaun Watson, people go. I don't want to. I don't want to say anything good about the Browns, but man, I think they could win a lot. And you know, they're a great team. That because they only won seven games last year, the Browns have a fairly light schedule. They're going to play Arizona, Indy, Houston, the Rams, Chicago. Literally five of the six bad teams I pointed out during episode 555. The Browns' schedule is loaded with bad teams, other than their division, of course, and when you look at this roster, on paper, it's hard to see a weakness. If there is a a problem with this Browns football team, you could argue it's that they don't have a lot of depth at running back, maybe. But then I would counter with saying, well, uh, Cleveland has arguably the best offensive line in football. So even if Nick Chubb, the running back, gets hurt, the great offensive line is still going to create good running lanes for whatever running back is there, whether that's their backup, Jerome Ford, or literally anybody they sign off the street, because there's a lot of veteran, good running backs available. Now, I went through my process. I went through and I did all the research. I got to know the Browns. I did my process of making all my picks, and uh, I go go through every game. 272 games. The result was this: I have the Cleveland Browns going 13 and four and winning the AFC North. 13 and four. To me, that. Um, would be a dramatic improvement that's six more wins than they had last year and I think there's a lot of skepticism of Cleveland again because it's the Browns and because it's Deshaun Watson and nobody wants to say anything good about Deshaun Watson Um, but even though they play in the toughest division of football in my opinion they got a lot of games against bad teams so it's a loaded roster with an easier schedule that is why I have the Cleveland Browns going 13 and 4 this fall now this prediction relies all on Deshaun Watson playing at a high level. But I encourage you, if you don't believe Deshaun Watson can play really good football, go watch the film from the 2020 season. The last time he played a full year, his final year in Houston. He played on a terrible football team. His coach, Bill O'Brien, got fired in October, like October 5th. I, think, I don't know why that's ingrained in my memory, but it is. And still, despite all of the garbage around him, Deshaun Watson played really well at a really high level. If he plays that way, he did his last year in Houston, 2020. If he plays that way in Cleveland this fall on a loaded Cleveland Browns roster, it could impact the entire AFC. That is why I have the Browns going 13-4. and four. I, I guess as uncomfortable as I am saying it, I think Deshaun Watson is going to be really good. And so are the Browns. What do you make of that? I think that's going to be—it's uh, going to ruffle some feathers. People are not going to like that. I don't even love it. I mean, i you know, I, to me, emotionally, after the Browns won a playoff game, any, like, little hope or joy I had in watching them kind of went away. I was like, ah, I was so invested. They won a playoff game, and then emotionally I checked out. I'm like, okay, okay, great. They, they reached the, the goal. They accomplished it. That's fine. But— Look, I, I, I trust my process. I, their roster is incredible. And if Deshaun Watson plays the way I know he can play, that's a Browns football team that can do some damage in the AFC. All right, let's talk about Baltimore. Let's talk about the Baltimore Ravens. The big question with Baltimore this fall is, can they do more than just make a playoff game? You know, Joe Burrow is 5 playoff wins in his NFL career. Lamar Jackson was drafted before Joe Burrow and only has one playoff victory. Joe Burrow is 5-2 in the playoffs. Lamar Jackson is 1-3. And And the biggest focus, what's going to allow Baltimore to go deeper in the playoffs is going to be Lamar Jackson taking a step forward as a passer. The last couple of years, the top teams in the AFC have been Cincinnati with Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, and Kansas City, and Josh Allen in Buffalo. The question really should be, can Lamar Jackson elevate Baltimore into the top of the AFC? Can they crack that elite group and push themselves up into the top of the AFC? I love what the Ravens have this year. They've got an amazing offensive line. They have invested in receivers. They added Odell Beckham Jr., they drafted Zay Jones in the first round. I'm, I'm really curious what Rashad Bateman's going to do. He's a former first-round pick in uh, 2021 at receiver. He's dealing with a foot injury. It's, he's not playing yet. Uh, Rashad Bateman only played in six games last year, but he was a first-round pick for a reason. There is potential there, but can Rashad Bateman stay healthy? Still, though, adding OBJ, adding Zay Jones. I mean, the Ravens are trying to support Lamar Jackson at receiver. They also have receiver Devin Duvernay. He's speedy, great return man. They've got an awesome tight end, Mark Andrews. I mean, there are good weapons around Lamar Jackson in Baltimore. They're trying, man. They're trying to give him the support he needs. They also hired Todd Munkin as the new offensive coordinator from Georgia. And I am really, really curious about the Ravens offense this year because I'm not sure what it's going to look like. In college, Todd Munkin always had better athletes. He was the offensive coordinator at Georgia. It was a physical mismatch in almost every game Georgia played. They just dominated one-on-one matchups all all the time. So really the question is, will Todd Munkin's ideas translate to the NFL? We will see. I am really curious to watch that this year. But it's very clear, a, a central focus of Baltimore this year is trying to improve their passing game. So, hey, we'll see what happens. I got to say, I I have a ton of respect for their head coach, John Harbaugh. To me, he's a bit underrated, actually, somehow. He's won a ton of games. I don't know why he's... um, People don't talk about John Harbaugh with the reverence I think he deserves, in my opinion. Uh, Now, I am concerned about the Ravens' corners. They signed in to a one-year deal. I'm hoping he helps, but we'll see. Uh, The other corners, Marlon Humphreys and... Uh, you know, I look at this Ravens secondary. Uh, I like Kyle Hamilton, their young safety. But this might be a team that relies on winning a couple shootouts. I mean, they're going to play in a lot of big games. Cincinnati, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, obviously. But, um, you know, Baltimore's also going to play Seattle, the 49ers, the Chargers, Detroit. Games where you got to score a lot of points. And I, I worry that having a weakness in the secondary, especially at corner, um, could be a problem. But you also can look at it as an opportunity. These big games, Seattle, 49ers, Chargers, Detroit, the games in their division obviously, they're opportunities for the Ravens to show what they can do. And uh you look man, I I'm really hinging on I'm hinging everything in this prediction on Lamar Jackson improving as a passer. And if that happens, it's not going to matter if they're a little bit weaker in the secondary. They're going to score enough points for it to not matter. Now, there's some uncertainty at running back for Baltimore because they signed Melvin Gordon, a veteran running back. And Melvin Gordon came out and said, J.K. Dobbins, their starting running back, is sitting out. I didn't know that. The world didn't know that. Left a lot of questions up in the air. Is J.K. Dobbins hurt? Is he upset with his contract? What's happening there? There's uncertainty what's going to happen at the running back position. I want to acknowledge it. I'm not sure how it's going to impact the year. But there is a question mark. What's going to happen with J.K. Dobbins? Is he going to play? Is he not? Like what? What's going on there? There seems like a an underlying situation that isn't publicly available for us to know. Now, to me, the Baltimore Ravens are a playoff team. I have them going twelve and five. Uh, worst case scenario, they're going to be a wild card team. And I really, truly believe we're going to see Lamar Jackson develop as a passer and obliterate people. Um, when you have a guy who is as talented running the football as he is who also has got a lot of weapons to throw to an incredible offensive line and develops as a passer and starts doing bigger and better stuff downfield. It's going to be unreal. And maybe sometimes developing as a passer isn't taking that deep shot and making some crazy throw. It's throwing to your check down. It's the little stuff. And it's the little details I want to see Lamar Jackson improve at. Um, but you know, 12 and five would be one more win than the Ravens had last year in a loaded AFC. Like you might ask Zach, The Ravens are a way better team when you talk about them. Why do they only win one more game than last year? It's because the AFC is so incredibly talented. There's that much incredibly gifted talent and football teams around them. Uh, But the question is, how much can Lamar Jackson elevate them? The AFC is super competitive. And the real question, again, is how much does Lamar Jackson develop as a passer this year? And how far can he take them? I want to talk about the Cincinnati Bengals. Last year, the Bengals lost the AFC title. Um, Two years ago, they lost the Super Bowl, so they went to -to back-to-back AFC championship games. Um, And it makes me think of the movie Moneyball, actually. You know, Joe Burrow is still trying to win the last game of the year. And uh, they're going to try again this year, man. They kept the group together. They've got their three stud receivers, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. Makes me wonder how long... They can keep that big three together. I'm not really sure. Um, you know, Contracts are coming up. They were able to keep Joe Mixon uh, with a reduced contract. The Bengals also were able to hold on to their defensive coordinator, Lou Anarumo. Uh, he's amazing. He's a fun defensive coordinator. I love his system. He's got these complicated schemes that make it really tough for opposing quarterbacks. I like him. Um, you know, This team last year was one score away from going to back-to-back Super Bowls. The, the Bengals are a really good football team. Um, and they didn't make a lot of moves this off, this offseason. They, they tried to keep everyone they could. They lost two safeties. They lost Jesse Bates and Von Bell. Um, so they've got kind of an unproven secondary. They have Nick Scott and second-year safety Dax Hill uh, with the belief that rookie Jordan Battle is going to be in the mix in the secondary to play safety as well. Uh, and the uh, the Bengals are likely starting a second-year corner Cam Taylor-Britt. Again, it's these unproven guys in their secondary. They make me go... We'll see. Um but again it's it's hard when you got this team that's going to back to back AFC title games and in the playoffs every year. It's hard to keep your group together. For the most part, for the most part the Bengals kept their group of guys together. They even made one really big addition. They lost two safeties. They they got some uncertainty there, but they added a star left tackle Orlando Brown. And to me, it's not the end forever of their their problems on the offensive line, but adding Orlando Brown made their offensive line better. And it's like having a centerpiece. It's just, they can build everything around him and uh, they're going to need as the years go on other players. But I think we're going to see Orlando Brown become just a mainstay on their offensive line for years to come protecting Joe Burrow. And that makes me really, really happy to see now the biggest weakness though, I said, they didn't make a lot of changes. The, The Bengals didn't, the Bengals are relatively similar to what they were last year. They're they're. Almost the same team with an addition at left tackle and a couple new safeties. The weakness in Cincinnati is their pass rush. They were 29th in sacks last year, and it's still basically the same defensive line group. I don't. I'm not sure how the Bengals are going to get pressure on opposing quarterbacks. It's going to take. We talked about Lou Anuramos. Lou Anuramos. I can't even. I don't. Why am I struggling with that last name? I, I, whatever. it Doesn't matter. They're struggling. I'm struggling with that. I think they're going to have to design a lot of creative blitzes and, you know, what's the word, Um, manufacture pass rush on a quarterback with bringing blitzers and complicating stuff because um, their D-line alone isn't getting pressure on quarterbacks. 29th in sacks last year is not great, especially when you realize the group didn't do anything to change what they're doing. Um, So I've got concerns on defense, man. I'm worried about their secondary. They got a lot of guys that are unproven. And... They can't get pressure on opposing quarterbacks, which isn't great. When you're playing Lamar Jackson and he's got a bunch of weapons to throw to, he's not under duress, and the guys guarding their receivers aren't as talented, that's a problem. And so I worry that the Bengals could take a step back this year. Um, It's not because they're a worse football team than they were last year. The Bengals are basically the same team they were last year. However, the AFC around them, Got way way better. The Jets have Aaron Rodgers. The Browns are going to have Deshaun Watson. Lamar Jackson got a lot of help in Baltimore. The AFC has got so many good teams, and you know I have the Bengals going twelve and five this year. Again, they won twelve games last year. Uh, they went twelve and four because the the Bills game never uh, got finished. So uh, that was kind of a weird as far as standings. It kind of screwed everything up. But I think they're going to win twelve games again this fall. And I worry that might be too high. There, I gave them 12 wins because when I looked at their schedule, I went through everything. And I was like, are you sure, Zach? I'm like, yeah, that's it. And I, I actually wanted to go lower given how much everything around them has improved. But then I go back to their team is basically the same. And they still have Joe Burrow with a better offensive line. It's hard to doubt Joe Burrow. I, I, I'm trying to give Joe Burrow the benefit of the doubt. But if they finish third in the AFC North, I would not be shocked. I mean, the Browns are better. The Ravens are better. And the Bengals don't have a great pass rush. They've got big question marks in their secondary. Um, And I worry about them, man. Like, after their bye week, they play, like, Houston and Indianapolis, and those are going to be easier games. But they've got nine. Like, it's like a gauntlet. After their bye week, they've got these nine brutal games where you're like, oh, I would not want to play that schedule at all. I mean, the back half of the year for Cincinnati – is really, really tough. And, uh, you know, it's just hard to sustain the levels of success that Cincinnati's had recently. Back-to-back AFC titles, winning almost every year, winning your division two years in a row. Um, You know, it's it's just hard to keep it going. And even if the Bengals got a little better this offseason, you know, adding an amazing left tackle, that's a huge deal. I just think all the other teams around them and the AFC got that much better. And it's it's really shocking to me how much more talent I see in the AFC as a you know opposed to the NFC in in the NFL. The AFC teams are way better. I'd be shocked if an AFC team didn't win the Super Bowl given how good it is in the AFC over there. And um, I guess I wouldn't be shocked if the Bengals take a small step backward. I have them at twelve and five. Uh, I could see that being eleven and seven or eleven and six or ten and seven, because again I just I want to acknowledge they got a tough schedule the second half of the year. They've got a, a bad combination, which is an, an inability to make opposing quarterbacks uncomfortable. They're not getting after the quarterback. They've got an unproven secondary. That's a problem. And, uh, ah, you know, if they finish third in the AFC uh, North, I would not be shocked. I'd be disappointed. I love Joe Burrow. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. That's why the Bengals have 12 wins in my predictions. But, uh, again, I have concerns about this football team that I do not have about other teams in the AFC. And that makes me not feel great. Okay. The last team in the AFC North is Pittsburgh. We'll talk about them after this drink of water. The Pittsburgh Steelers are a team that I just can't wait to watch this fall. Um, The thing I'm most excited to see is actually the connection developing between their second year quarterback, Kenny Pickett, and their second year receiver, George Pickens. To me... They're growing, and as they grow together, I think it gives me vibes of Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison. This really good dynamic duo that could be so fun to watch for years to come. I believe George Pickens is about to have a breakout year. If you've been watching Steelers training camp, he's been having catch after catch, making play after play. Uh, they also have other receivers, got Deontay Johnson and Allen Robinson. Allen Robinson's a big question mark. Um, he played for years, and you know, in Chicago, with not a great quarterback. He was in uh, LA with the Rams last year. I I want to see Allen Robinson. Was he was that 2 years ago? Hey, that's crazy. Like Allen Robinson's done very little despite how being a great despite being a great quarterback hasn't done a lot during his NFL career. I am hoping that this year in Pittsburgh Allen Robinson has a good enough quarterback to finally show what he can do. Um I really like the Steelers tight end Pat Fryermuth. He's all reliable. I just he's got good hands inside. I really trust him. He reminds you of like Keith Miller back in the day. And Another thing I really love about this Steelers football team, this is the best offensive line in years in Pittsburgh. Um, Everyone on their offensive line is under 30, which is a really encouraging thing. It's a young group. Uh, They added guard Isaac uh, Sayamalo. I love him. They got a rookie 14th overall pick, Broderick Jones, who's going to be starting at left tackle. Um, So I I think there's... Now, having a starting left tackle who's a rookie also means growing pains. It's not going to be man from heaven immediately. It might take a couple weeks for him to settle in. Um, And look at Seattle. Seattle had two rookie tackles last year, and they were hit and miss at times. I mean, they really kind of struggled. Abraham Lucas, Charles Cross, um, they're going to be better this year, I think, in Seattle. But having a rookie tackle, it's great for your future. It might hurt you early on during the year. Um, But I still find the offensive line in Pittsburgh is the most encouraging thing I've seen in a long, long time from that group in Pittsburgh. Uh, the best player by far in Pittsburgh is their pass rusher, TJ Watt. He is just a terrifying force. I would not want to play against him as an opposing quarterback. No way. I'm like, nope. We're playing who this week? Hey, does a backup maybe want to play? I'm not sure. Um, obviously, I wouldn't do that. But, man, I, I just – TJ Watt is uh, – he's crazy, man. He's so good. I like their secondary. they got safeties, Minkovitz, Patrick, DeMonte Casey. Corner's really interesting for Pittsburgh this year. They have this – Polar opposite group. You've got on one side Patrick Peterson, a 33 year old veteran who feels like he's played for every NFL team under the sun. And then you got a rookie on the other side, Joey Porter Jr. And I'm really excited for Joey Porter Jr. to play with Patrick Peterson and have a guy he can watch and learn from and kind of work as a mentor because Patrick Peterson, he's hard to hate. He's hard to criticize. He's done so many good things throughout his career. He's a solid pro. He's done Just a lot of stuff at a high level in the NFL. I can't think of a better guy for Joey Porter to work with and learn from than Patrick Peterson, actually. I think that's awesome. Um, One weakness for the Steelers' defense, in my opinion, is they're weaker at inside linebacker. I think it's going to hurt them in the run defense. But in a passing league, if you're weak at inside linebacker, I can handle that. If you're going to be weak at any position, inside linebacker ain't that bad. I mean, that's that's a pill I can swallow. Now it does suck. They play Baltimore and Cleveland twice. Who, um, you know, both of those teams run the ball well between the tackles. That's not great. Um, But outside of their division, I think this having a weaker inside linebacking group isn't the end of the world at all. Um, I think it's also worth saying as I talk about Pittsburgh. I love their head coach Mike Tomlin. Um, I respect him. I think somehow he's underrated. Like John Harbaugh and and Mike Tomlin. Our two coaches that have won Super Bowls um, who—they're just not—they're not given a lot of respect when you see coaching rankings and all this stuff. Like, for some reason, Mike Tomlin and John Harbaugh, they don't get a lot of shine. They don't get a lot of respect. They've been at their teams for years. They've won a lot, and yet people, I think, are just bored with their success. And uh, to me, 16 years as a head coach in Pittsburgh, how can you not respect what Mike Tomlin has done and what he's built and as he's pivoting to a new quarterback and it's working as well. I mean, it, to me, it's just an impressive thing. People talk about how Mike Tomlin was handed the keys of the cars to Ferrari, but he, and that might be true. Mike Tomlin inherited a great team from Bill Cowher, but then he kept it going. And after 10, 12, 14, 16 years, you're like, hey, at what point does he get credit for the thing he built? Because it's no longer Bill Cowher's team anymore. It hasn't been for 16 years. It's weird to me that, you know, no one talks about The sustained success Mike Tomlin's had, other than the uh, they've had a winning year every year, basically. is the only thing you see occasionally mentioned because it's this cool streak, but it doesn't feel like a sense of respect. It feels like, oh, look at this cool thing he's doing. Anyway, the the big question in Pittsburgh to me is it's year two for Kenny Pickett, and and I want to see how big of a leap is he going to have? How much better is Kenny Pickett going to be this year compared to last year? I have the Steelers going nine and eight this fall, nine wins, eight losses. It's the exact same record they had last year. I think it's a borderline playoff team. If this team was in the NFC, they're a playoff team, undoubtedly. They would win the AFC South. They would win the NFC South. They're, I think, a really good football team. It just so happens they play in the toughest division in football. They play Baltimore, Cleveland, and Cincinnati twice, and are competing with them in their records. Um, Look, the AFC is so competitive. There's only seven playoff spots, and uh, Kenny Pickett is probably going to be really good this fall. But again, the AFC, there's so many good teams. You got Aaron Rodgers with the Jets, Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City, Joe Burrow, Cincinnati, Lamar Jackson in Baltimore, Justin Herbert, Deshaun Watson in Cleveland, Russell Wilson in Denver, Josh Allen in Buffalo. Haven't even mentioned him yet somehow on this list. Miami and Tua. I mean, the competition is incredible in the AFC. Great quarterbacks, great football teams all paired together. And so if you want to break into that top seven, get a playoff spot in the AFC, you have to be truly special at quarterback. And I think it's going to require Kenny Pickett playing at an elite level, which I don't know that it's going to happen this year. I think Kenny Pickett might still be a year away from becoming the elite quarterback I think he's capable of being. But you got to play like Peyton Manning. you got to get up there and play like Joe Burrow. I mean, the the amount of success Kenny Pickett can have without making a playoff Appearance this year is stag- staggering. I mean, just I, I think Pittsburgh's a victim of circumstance. They're a great football team that is in this loaded conference, in the loaded division. Who's going to get outshined and overlooked? And as a result of that, again, I've got Pittsburgh going nine and eight, a respectable year. Not any more wins than last year, but not a drop off either. And hopefully, it's a it's a cleaner nine and eight, an easier path to that. Um, and it's a year of growing and a year that. If you can build off this year, going into next year, maybe Kenny Pickett does play at an elite level and play like one of the top five, six, eight quarterbacks in the NFL. And if he does that, Pittsburgh's going to be in a great spot. But I think it's an unrealistic expectation to see Kenny Pickett leading the Pittsburgh Steelers to a playoff game this year when you just got to look around the AFC. You're like, is he better than Aaron Rodgers? Is he going to be better than Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert? Deshaun Watson, like I, it just, I think you have to have realistic expectations for how far Kenny Pickett can take this team in only a second year, and so I think the year is going to end, and um, it's it's just a a team that's still in transition, and um, to me, I again, I have the Steelers going nine and eight this year, and I think this year is about building for your future and developing your young quarterback, but I think at the end of the year, week eighteen comes, the Steelers aren't in the playoffs if they're nine and eight, and this really comes to pass, then. I think Steelers fans are going to look in the mirror and say, it was a good year. We didn't get where we wanted to, but we feel good about our future. And that's what's most important, is that Kenny Pickett continues to play well, to prove why he's a franchise quarterback, and offer the fan base in Pittsburgh hope for their future. Because this is a team that, they're not going to be competing for a Super Bowl. They're just not there yet. And you have to acknowledge they're still a team in transition and let them do that. So I I, I am asking, I'm begging Steelers fans Be patient with your team. Be patient with your young quarterback. Um, And and remember that they're playing in the toughest division in football. And that's a really tough situation for a team that I think normally would be a borderline playoff team, but this year is going to get massively outshined by everyone else in the AFC. Wow. That's the AFC North. Oh my gosh. We got four more teams left to talk about real quick. I say real quick, like it won't take 30 minutes. All right, I am sweaty. It is hot. It's humid. It's August in Honolulu. We are pushing on. We got four teams left I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about the Detroit Lions. So for the first time in my lifetime, I am allowing myself to believe in the Detroit Lions. I it's a not a it's a new feeling for me. It doesn't feel natural. It feels very weird. I'm hesitant. Um, but I think the Lions are gonna be really good this year. And you know, they sold out season tickets for the first time in the history of their stadium, Ford Field. So clearly, I'm not alone. Their fan base also really believes in Detroit. And it feels like everyone, other than, you know, Packers fans, Bears fans, Vikings fans, seems like everyone other than their division rivals wants to see Detroit do well. They're like the little engine that could. I just want to see Detroit do something cool this year. And man, they've got potential for that. The Lions have one of the best offensive lines in football. This really incredible group of guys. They've got a talented run- rookie running back, Jameer Gibbs, who Jameer Gibbs can line up all over the field. You can put him at running back. You can line him up out wide at receiver. They've also got a really good number two running back, David Montgomery. He's awesome. That one-two punch is going to be fun to see this year. They've got a solid wide receiver room for quarterback Jared Goff. They've got Ross St. Brown, who's their best receiver. And Ross St. Brown reminds me a lot of Cooper Cup, uh, who used to be a teammate with Jared Goff, a guy who can... He's naturally more of a slot receiver playing inside, but he can line up out wide, and he's a great blocker. He's very physical. Um, The Lions also have Josh Reynolds, Khalif Raymond, and Denzel Mims. Denzel Mims is a six-foot receiver, six-foot-three receiver coming out uh, of—he got traded over from the Jets, and I'm really curious to see what he can do. Denzel Mims never reached his potential in New York. I don't think culturally he was a great fit there, but I'm hoping that the Lions can get the most out of him. Uh, They've got an exciting second-year receiver, 2022 first-round pick, Jamison Williams, who is unfortunately suspended for the first six games of the year, but ultimately could end up being a really big player for them who could have a lot of big plays and make a huge impact. Uh, They drafted a tight end, Sam Laporta, out of Iowa. And, uh, you know, he's going to be the starting tight end. I'm excited for him. I think what you have to remember when you look at the Lions, if you're not sure about their tight end situation, their head coach, Dan Campbell... Played tight end to the NFL. He was once the tight ends coach uh, under Sean Payton in New Orleans. I think he knows tight ends really well. So if he says Sam Laporte is good, I go, all right, Dan, I trust you. Let's see what he can do. And honestly, this offense really reminds me a lot of the 2018 Rams team that Jared Goff took to a Super Bowl. They were second in scoring that year in 2018. The the Rams were second only to the Kansas City Chiefs. You got to remember, Jared Goff, Playing at a high level is really, really good and productive and can score a lot of points. That 2018 team, if you forgot what they can do, go back in time, look at their victories, look at what happened, look at how many points they scored. They were a really fun team to watch. And similar to that Rams system, this year's Lions team is going to get a lot of people out of position. They're going to run the ball heavily and really well. They're going to be under center a lot. They're going to use meaningful motion, which is going to, Really what's going to happen is they're going to have a lot of plays that look very similar. A motion here, it's a handoff. It looks the same as the other one. They fake the handoff and run play action, orbit motions, short motion, stuff like that. I'm really excited to see them just manipulate defenses a ton by forcing them to give up their looks and forcing them to get out of position and kind of lulling them to sleep. They'll see, oh, it's the same motion we've been seeing all game. And then they'll use a wrinkle off of it and go, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I'm really excited for the creativity that comes along with what the Lions are going to do under center, using motion. And, you know, I think people don't realize Jared Goff is going to be given like an all-time high level amount of freedom at the line of scrimmage. I've seen videos where they talk about Jared Goff goes to the line and has five plays available for him to run, which is an absurd amount. I mean, in the past, Russell Wilson's only had three. I mean, they are really letting Jared Goff do what he wants at the line of scrimmage and running the right play. And that's really cool. You're giving Jared Goff total ownership of this offense. Um, Jameer Gibbs is going to be a big-time playmaker. A- and frankly, this is the best coaching staff the Lions have had maybe ever. I mean, you look at this coaching staff, you're like, wow. And you know, the, the best – the coach that I covet that I worry about them losing is Ben Johnson, their offensive coordinator. He's a guy who's really smart, does a good job. They were able to keep him and, and not consider head coaching offers last year. I, I'll pay him whatever it takes to keep him there. I think he's gonna be really good for Jared Goff and they're gonna do good things together. But what this Lions coaching staff is gonna do on offense and defense is put players in a position to do well, which to me is what good coaching is, and they're gonna take advantage of their their good young players. Now, I think the one weakness in Detroit is that they've got no true number two outside corner. You know, in the draft, they had two first-round picks. They wanted to get Jameer Gibbs, but I think their other target was to try to get a corner. And all the guys they wanted to draft at corner in the first round were taken from them. So they landed on linebacker Jack Campbell uh, from Iowa in the first round as their second first-round pick, you know, their second pick of the first round. But there's a question mark at corner. Uh, However, even though they're not as good as I'd like them to be at corner, they've got a really good pass rush. Everyone knows about Aiden Hutchinson, their number two overall pick. But if they get after the quarterback, it's going to make it easier for corners that don't have to defend as long. And uh, quarterbacks who are getting sacked, quarterbacks who are getting hit, quarterbacks who are under pressure, aren't as accurate. So I think the way they can make up for their lack of a a great number two corner is get after the quarterback, make opposing quarterbacks uncomfortable. If they can do that, it's going to really help their secondary. And uh, there's a player to watch. James Houston had eight sacks last year, uh, and he's, he's a... Not necessarily a starting pass rusher in Detroit, but he's making a name for himself on passing downs. I encourage you to pay attention to James Houston in Detroit this year. A guy who can get after the quarterback and eight sacks last year to not be a starter. That's a really impressive number to me. So uh, I'm excited about him. And then I mentioned him. Denzel Mims is a player who's got potential. I think one of the only other maybe criticisms of the Lions roster is they don't have a true... Big, tall outside receiver. Well, they traded for Denzel Mims from the Jets. And I'm not sure he's gonna work out, but he's six foot three, had a lot of potential in college. I was really excited for him, actually. Didn't seem to fit in the Jets organization, but maybe Denzel Mims can work out in Detroit and reach his potential, which would be really fun to see. So all that being said, I have the Lions going 10 and 7 this year. Um, I know that's not I think Lions fans want to hear 13 and four, 12 and five. Um, I think 10 and seven wins them the NFC North. I feel really strongly they're going to win their division. And if anything, I I worry that 10 and seven is too low. Actually, that might not be enough wins uh, in my predictions. But I am. I want to be very, very clear. I'm. I'm really, really confident in Jared Goff, their quarterback. I think he's going to have a great year, and I think the Lions are going to make a playoff game. And uh, I think it's going to be the best year in a long. Long time in Detroit, and I cannot wait to watch it. All right. Um, we got to talk about this one. I want to talk about the Minnesota Vikings. Um, last year was a magical year for the Minnesota Vikings. They went 13-4. and They made the playoffs. Their first-year head coach, Kevin O'Connell, was a massive home run. And the question is, can Minnesota do it again? Well, one thing they did this offseason that I loved in Minnesota, they added a new defensive coordinator, Brian Flores, former Dolphins head coach who did a great job there, former uh, you know, coach in Pittsburgh. Now he's the defensive coordinator in Minnesota. Round of applause. That's a great hire and a great move. Now, the Vikings did lose a couple of guys who were big contributors. They lost defensive tackle Dalvin Tomlinson. He went to uh, Cleveland got a big contract. They lost wide receiver Adam Thielen. They tried to replace him with Jordan Addison, the first-round pick. Running back Dalvin Cook is gone. Uh, that's probably addition by subtraction. He was a big contract uh, and wasn't as productive. They lost cornerback Pactor Peterson to Pittsburgh. They lost linebacker Eric Kendricks. Uh, they traded pass rusher Zadarius Smith. I have questions about their defense. However, their defense was terrible last year, so it's losing some defenders and trying to bring in new guys. Not the worst thing I've ever seen. They brought in a new corner Byron Murphy to replace Patrick Peterson. Now, the big question mark on the Vikings defense, in my opinion, is Marcus Davenport. He's a pass rusher. He is supposed to help them get after the quarterback. Uh, he was brought in from New Orleans. Marcus Peters is a former first round pick who's 26 years old, very young for a guy who's been in the year. For, he's been in the league for five years somehow, uh, but unfortunately, in five years in the NFL, and he's missed some games due to injury, but. You know, playing 11, 15 games a year, like, it's really sad that his sack number has only got 21 and a half sacks in five years in the league. That's not great. Um, I thought in 2021 he showed potential, but that's two years ago. And uh, Marcus Davenport's a big question mark. Can he really make their pass rush better in Minnesota? I'm not sure. However, they weren't great last year. I- I'm really curious how Brian Flores can help the defense in Minnesota because Minnesota last year was ranked at the very bottom of all of the defensive categories. Almost all of them. It's ridiculous. Last year, their defense in Minnesota was terrible. And uh, also last year, the Vikings went 13-4. To go 13-4 with a bad defense, pretty impressive. says a lot about their offense. This year, uh, and, and Vikings fans, hear me out. Please don't kill me. Listen to what I have to say, then give me feedback. But Vikings fans... I have the Vikings going nine and eight this fall. Um, you know, a couple things went really, really well for Minnesota last year. They stayed relatively healthy. They were 11 and0 in regular season games that were one score. So to win basically every one score game you play in, that's shockingly rare and doesn't happen very often. And they had a couple insane wins. They beat Buffalo in overtime in this crazy game where they converted a fourth and 18 to Justin Jefferson. Minnesota had the biggest comeback in NFL history against the Colts. That's probably not going to happen again this year. So I expect Minnesota to take a step backward. I think they were they overachieved last year. It was great. It was fun. It was magical is the word. But this year, Minnesota's got a really tough schedule. I have them starting three and three, and then kind of hovering all year around 500, finishing ultimately nine and eight. I'm not hating on the Vikings. Uh, I don't have any disrespect for them. But we have to acknowledge how well things went for them last year and how unlikely it is that happens again this fall. Plus, last year, the Lions weren't as good. And, you know, I I think a lot of the teams around them are better. Plus, the Vikings winning their division, making a playoff game, means they're going to play a tougher schedule. So uh, I feel comfortable saying the the Vikings are going to take a step backward this year. And uh, that sucks. I like Kirk Cousins. I like their coach, Kevin O'Connell. But, um, you know, the big question mark, how big of an impact can Brian Flores have on that defense? If Brian Flores comes out and top to bottom turns around that defense entirely, that could make this prediction very, very wrong. So keep your eye on that. Uh, And one player to watch, it's worth noting this, in Minnesota, they've got a second-year safety, Luis Cine, who, um, he was a first-round pick in 2022. They need him this fall. He broke his leg week four last year, so he never really got a chance to play at all last year. Keep your eye on their second-year corner, second-year safety. Excuse me, in Minnesota. All right. Uh, How about the big one? The probably the biggest brand in the NFC North, in my opinion. Let's talk about the Green Bay Packers. The Green Bay Packers are a young team that gives me a lot of hope for their future. And I think if you're a Packers fan, the most fun thing to watch this year is going to be watching these young guys grow together, and learn how to win together. It's going to be Jordan Love's first year as a starting quarterback in Green Bay, replacing Aaron Rodgers. He's really talented. I loved him coming out of college. He's got a huge arm, can make every throw. I really believe in Jordan Love. And uh, the guys he's throwing to are also really young, either a rookie or in their second year. They're top couple guys. they got two second-year receivers. Christian Watson, former second-round pick out of North Dakota State. He's their most talented guy. He's got a lot of potential. Can't wait to see what he becomes. Uh, you got Romeo Dobbs. Then you also have a rookie receiver, Jaden Reed, uh, out of Michigan State. He's a second-round pick from this year's draft with a lot of potential that could be fun to watch. Uh, They've got two rookie tight ends. They've got Luke Musgrave, second-round pick out of Oregon State. They also drafted a tight end, uh, a third-round pick, Tucker Craft. So a lot of youth in their receiving room. Tight end, two rookie tight ends, rookie receiver Jaden Reed, two second-year receivers, Romeo Dobbs and Christian Watson. It's a young group uh, catching passes from Jordan Love. And I like that. I think it allows them to all come up together, kind of like a— It gives me, like, baseball team vibes. I know that's kind of weird, but I, I grew up watching the Seattle Mariners, and I loved watching their young prospects develop. And you're like, hey, that guy in AAA that comes up and plays occasionally, he's going to turn into a great player. Of course, they traded that player away, Adam Jones, and Forever Bitter. But my point is, watching these young guys come together, I think, is going to be just a joy for a Packers fan. And I hope you can lean into that and enjoy it and, and enjoy watching the progress they make from Week 1— to week 18 now i really really like the packers offensive line uh for a young quarterback to have an advantage like a great offensive line is huge that's exactly what jordan love has and also it's an offensive line with a lot of depth i mean they can sustain and survive an injury on the offensive line and have another guy step up and do okay i think that's really cool uh they've got a a starting running back aaron jones i really like uh their number two back a.j Dillon has been, I think, a bit of a disappointment so far in his NFL career, but we'll see if A.J. Dillon can make a lot of progress and play even better this fall. Now, the reality of this team, given how young they are on offense other than the offensive line, the offensive line is full of studs that are awesome, and they're well-proven, but you know, the, the receiving core in Green Bay is unproven. they got to show what they can do. To me, this Packers team is led by their defense. They've got a great front seven, a solid secondary, Uh, The big storyline on defense is I want to see Rashawn Gary, their pass rusher, take a step forward. He was a first-round pick in 2019 out of Michigan. Uh, Two years ago, he had nine and a half sacks, and uh, he had a good start to last year, but Torrey's ACL kind of sidelined him, and I I thought he was having a great year, and and then getting hurt against Detroit kind of took any progress he was making away, which really sucked. But you know, one interesting thing that happened in Green Bay this offseason is that they decided to keep their defensive coordinator, Joe Barry. And I was surprised they kept him after last year. And I wonder if keeping Joe Barry is going to prove to be a mistake. Ultimately, we'll see. Time will tell. Um, I think it's a risk, though. I think, A, it keeps continuity on their defense. They can keep doing the same stuff and try to see if they can get better at doing it. And if they fail, they can hire a new guy for next year. It's kind of low risk because I don't think Green Bay— is competing for a Super Bowl this fall. This year is going to be all about growth and development and getting those young players where they need to be on the offensive side of the football. I think best-case scenario, this Packers team finds a way into a playoff game via the wild card. I don't expect that, but that would be a pleasant surprise. I believe the Packers are going to go 9-8, and and there will be a lot of fun, small moments. Um... But ultimately, this is a, a year for development. And I really believe in Jordan Love. I, I want to say that very clearly. I believe in him long-term. He's going to be awesome. But he needs patience. He needs some time to grow and develop. If he makes mistakes early on, I hope he doesn't. I hope Jordan Love comes out week one and destroys the Chicago Bears. But if he doesn't, take a deep breath, relax, allow him time to develop. And I this 9-8 and eight record for the Packers does account for that. I expect them to... Take their time to kind of grow and come together as an offensive unit. Uh, Nine and eight would be a good year to me. That's one more win than they had last year. I think it would show progress actually. And I think by the end of the year, Packers fans are going to take a deep breath and feel really good about their future. Going, we got the right quarterback. We we learned what happened. Whether the defense did good or not, they'll figure out whether the defensive coordinator can play. But I think long term. The quarterback is really all that matters this year. How can Jordan Love develop and get better? And I think at the end of the year, that question will be answered and give Packers fans a really good feeling. Now, the first three games of the year in Green Bay are really interesting because week one, they play at Chicago. That's a weaker defense with a below average pass rush that I think is going to be great for Jordan Love making his first ever start replacing Aaron Rodgers. That's going to be not his first ever start in the NFL. I realize that, but this is a big moment for Jordan Love. Game number one, it's supposed to be your team. I think to be able to play against a weaker defense, like that's such an advantage. Can you imagine if week one, he played against like the Cowboys pass rush? I mean, that's just a way tougher road to go down. And so um, as far as he kind of got a gift from the scheduling gods to play a weaker defense in his first start this year, to kind of get started off on the right foot. I think that's awesome. Now week number two at Atlanta is really interesting. By the way, the Packers start on the road two games this year. They play, you know, again, week one at Chicago, week two at Atlanta. This Atlanta game is going to be fascinating because they've got two young quarterbacks, Jordan Love on one side, Desmond Ritter on the other, both trying to show the world what they can do. And, uh, I think, I think Jordan Love comes out on top on that matchup. I think I'm really excited to see. That's a game where you're going to see Jordan Love a- and go, Oh, cause he's going to look, I think a lot better than Desmond Ritter throwing the football. And, uh, Get a lot of respect and belief from Packers fans. And then week number three, they play New Orleans at home in Green Bay. That's going to be a fun test for the Packers because it's really going to show what their defense can do. Derek Carr has an opportunity with the Saints to play in a really good system with good players around him. It's going to test Derek Carr and it's going to test the Packers' defense. How good are they? If they shut down Derek Carr, that's a big deal to me. And I think these first three games for the Packers at Chicago— at Atlanta, then against New Orleans, we're going to learn a lot about this young Green Bay team in the first three games of the year. But I think it's a gift from the gods to play Chicago week one and a weaker defense with a weaker pass rush and not a great secondary. For a guy with, you know, second and rookie receivers, second year rookie receivers, that's going to be a huge advantage. So I feel great about what Green Bay's doing. I feel great about Jordan Love. And I think this early schedule is going to be fun to watch for the Green Bay Packers. All right. Um, The Chicago Bears, man. Um, The Chicago Bears are the number one overall pick in this year's NFL draft. And uh, they decided to trade down. They did not draft a quarterback when they could have. They actively chose to commit to Justin Fields. And for that, I thank them. I am so happy they chose to commit to Justin Fields. Uh, Justin Fields going into year three. I think he's on the path to becoming a superstar. I really believe in his future. I love him. And the Bears are trying to support him. Uh, They used their first-round pick to draft a right tackle, Darnell Wright from Tennessee. I love it. They're investing in their offensive line, a huge problem for them recently. Uh, They also added guard Nate Davis in free agency. Again, this is a team addressing their problems and getting better on an offensive line that's been a huge problem early on in Justin Fields' career. So the Bears' offensive line is going to be better. Uh, And when they traded down in the draft with Carolina, they also got a new receiver, DJ Moore. So the wide receiver room is better. They got DJ Moore, Chase Claypool, Darnell Mooney. That's a pretty solid group. Plus, they got two good tight ends. They've got Cole Komet and Robert Tanyan, who came over from Green Bay. So I, I really like what is going on for Justin Fields to throw the football to. A better offensive line, DJ Moore, Chase Claypool, Cole Komet. Robert Tanyan had a lot of big catches from Aaron Rodgers over the years. Darnell Mooney. I really like what's going on in Chicago. Um, I want to see Justin Fields improve as a passer. That's a big question he's got to answer this year. But it feels like, and respect to Ryan Poles, the Bears general manager, he's doing that. He's supporting Justin Fields and putting him in a better position to be successful with more help around him. I like the Bears offense. Here's the problem. Last year, the Bears defense allowed more points than any other defense in the NFL. That is not great, especially when you consider Matt Eberflus, their head coach, is a defensive head coach. It's always embarrassing when you have a defensive head coach and a bad defense. Like, What are we, what are we doing? Especially when you've got a young quarterback like Justin Fields you're trying to develop. I worry Matt Eberflus isn't the right coach given the situation you got a young quarterback Justin Fields you're trying to grow and develop. I don't think Matt Eberflus might be the right guy for the job. To me, Matt Eberflus seems like a nice man, nice guy. But as a head coach, he's got a lot to prove, and we'll see if he does that this year. Um, you know, they made three additions on their defense. They added linebackers T.J. Edwards and Tremaine Edmonds, uh, and they added defensive end Yannick Ngakwe. I'm not really sure how adding two linebackers are gonna make the Bears' defense dramatically better. I'm skeptical. I think they overpaid Tremaine Edmonds. I think that's the problem. But we'll see. Hey. The football guys, maybe they know more than I do. I mean, who am I to doubt Matt Eberflus' football mind? But I am not convinced that these two linebackers are going to solve all their problems. And then adding Yannick Ngakwe, it's a move that, had, that happened later during training camp. And uh, man, it was badly, badly needed. Yannick Ngakwe is hopefully going to, I don't think he's going to solve the problem, but you get points for effort, and I think it's going to make them better. The Bears' pass rush is really, really weak. They struggled to make quarterbacks uncomfortable. They struggled to get pressure on quarterbacks at all last year. Again, Yannick Ngakwe isn't going to solve everything, but he's a step in the right direction that's going to make them a little bit better immediately this year. There's a lot of youth on this football team, though. Uh, You know, Bears rookie corner, second-round pick. Tyreek Stevenson is expected to be a starting corner. And when you've got a young secondary with a weak pass rush, that is a very, very concerning duo because making your quarterback uncomfortable makes them less accurate and harder, th- having a harder time throwing the football downfield, and that helps your corners. So your corners and your pass rushers work really closely together. I think they're weak at both, which means I think it's very possible. You know, I worry quarterbacks are going to eat the Bears alive. It's not going to be fun to watch their defense, I don't think, this year. Now, I am really hopeful because they drafted two defensive tackles in the second round and the third round. Uh, Devin Dexter and Zach Pickens, both out of the, out of the SEC, I would love to see those guys, Pickens and Dexter, by the end of the year, emerge as contributors on the defensive line. That's something that makes me feel good and have hope for the future. But ultimately, I have the Bears going 6-11. and 11. And, uh, you know, that's three more wins than last year, but still falling short of where I think they need to be long-term. And I'm not sure that winning six games this fall would be enough for Matt Eberflus, the head coach, to keep his job going into next year. Um, I, I worry this defense is still not going to be very good. And that reflects very poorly when you have a defensive head coach. And to me, my concern is that the offense, which could be successful and score a lot of points this year, isn't going to be able to keep up with opposing teams. You know, that, that th- last year, man, you're losing games by a lot of points. You just can't keep up. When your defense is getting torched, it's difficult. And um, I, I worry the offense won't be able to keep up with opposing teams they're playing. So I do believe in Justin Fields. I think by the end of the year, I don't think there will be any more doubts about him, but I have the Bears going 6-11 because the team around Justin Fields still needs work. And I'm not sold on the coach, Matt Eberflus. I, I hope I'm wrong. I'd love to be. But I think it's, it's an interesting position to believe in the quarterback, Justin Fields, think they're going to get better to win three more games than last year, and, and then still be well short. I mean, that shows they earned the number one overall pick last year because they weren't a good football team. They still got a lot of room to grow and a lot of room to go to get better. So the Bears are not the worst team in the NFL. Um, I encourage you, if you're a Bears fan, there's going to be a lot of good moments. Like Justin Fields is going to do crazy stuff where you're like, did you see that throw? Did you see that run? Like there's going to be highlight fun moments in Chicago. I think they're an exciting team, but not a good team. So um, I hope you can enjoy the good and let go of the bad and try to enjoy what's going to be a, a kind of messy year in Chicago. Messy, but still fun to watch. And uh, again, I have the Bears going 6-11 and 11 this fall. All right, guys. Um, those are my predictions for the AFC and NFC North. Again, I've got the Browns going 13-4. The Ravens going 12-5. The Bengals going 12-5. The Steelers going 9-8. The Lions going 10-7. and seven, The Vikings and Packers both going 9-8 and the Bears going 6-11. and 11. Uh, Give me feedback. If you think I'm wrong, tell me why. What am I getting wrong? What do you not agree with me on? Maybe you just don't like my evaluation. Maybe uh, there's something I'm not missing, but something you just think I'm totally wrong on the way I'm evaluating your football team. Write in and tell me. Um, it's very possible I am overvaluing the AFC North. I mean, look, I, I have three teams that are 12 wins or more in the AFC North. That's That's a lot. That's a pretty strong group um and i think they're better than the afc east which is also a controversial thing to say so write in tell me what you think uh maybe i'm crazy maybe the browns are not as good as i believe but i would love to hear feedback from you guys guys my name is zach Shomler. that was a monster of an episode like a lot a lot of preparation a lot of work a lot of nerves playing into all this but hope you enjoyed the show hope you have a great day and uh pum, bum bam we are done